Welcome to We Write Songs, a podcast for all songwriters. Whether you're a well-established working songwriter or just about to write your very first song. I'm Celine Ellis. And I'm Tara Henton. Hello and welcome back to the We Write Songs podcast. Tara, how are we doing? I'm very well today, Celine. How about yourself? You're always very well. I'm pretty sure if we went back and listened to all the podcasts, that's how I would I ask I mean, you that. Do you want me to tell you the truth? Or <laughs> <laughs> No, I well, am very well. I'm not lying. I'm that's a bit the of a main headache thing. there. That's the the honesty's come through now. Is that better? Uh, I'm really excited about today's podcast. Oh, I think that's why we're both a little bit giddy. Uh, we've got a special guest with us today. Do you want to introduce our lovely guest? Well, we have a very highly acclaimed um, composer and songwriter, Stacey Widelitz. Um, hello, Stacey. How are you today? Fine. How are you? Yeah, doing Lovely very to meet well. You. Thank Lovely you. Lovely to meet you, Stacey. Um, so for anybody out there listening who hasn't come across um, Stacey's work before, he came to prominence with a rather well-known song called She's Like the Wind, which was co-written with Patrick Swayze um, and featured in the blockbuster Dirty Dancing. Huge part of my childhood as well, Celine. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Thank you for making me feel old, by the way. So. Uh, I'm sorry, that was not the intent. I, I've, um, got, I've got to tell you at this point, I'm going to take this opportunity. My sister made me watch Dirty Dancing every school holidays, religiously. It was like a cult in our, in our house. Um, but as a, a, a music fan and a, somebody who was going to move into songwriting at the time, She's Like the Wind has always stood out to me as... Uh, something I've taken away from that kind of experience. And uh, yeah, it, I'm, it's an honour to get to chat to you about how, how you wrote it and where it all came from and, and how you took it to where it's become, what, what it's become today. So There you go. But I mean, Stacey has a lot more to talk about because not only has does he have that chart-topping song under his belt, which he received countless awards for, millions of you know airplay awards and so on but he's also you know scored loads of feature films made for tv um stuff so he's got all of that experience and more recently done a bit of a pivot and become an award-winning uh, photographer as well and also much more involved um in your you know kind of arts community and local government um serving as board president of the nashville film festival the alias chamber ensemble leadership music nashville opera and currently the president of the nashville opera guild so i'm actually i'm now past president so oh, past president i'm, I'm so, glad to have the leadership role behind me there you go. But certainly more than one string to your bow with such a, a well-rounded and illustrious music career to uh, be able to, I'm sure we we could probably keep this podcast going for several hours and <laughs> try to keep it to our normal. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess really, I mean, I know Celine wants to dig in with She's Like the Wind, but I mean, I, reading your bio and I, I'm, I feel quite privileged that I actually did get to meet you in person eight years ago. We were just talking about um, our shared experience at a retreat with Gretchen Peters in Tuscany. And I know you had mentioned a few things to me then about making quite an early start in the music business with um, a theme song to a hit TV show, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Um well, I mean, even early, I, I started playing, I grew up on Long Island in New York, and um, I started playing clubs on Long Island when I was 15. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I was actually underage, because these clubs were serving alcohol, and at the time in New York, you had to be 18. And when my father found out that they were actually going to be paying us very well, myself and the uh, the rest of the quartet I was in, uh, and we were not a rock band. We were playing like Girl from Ipanema and Standards and, you know, really? stuff like that. And, Very uh, cool. 
Yeah, like 15 so, years old. That's amazing. Yeah, it was it was great and a great training ground for what came eventually because you're just going through you know all these great songs. But um, my father found out that we were going to be paid actually very well, and I told him I said, "But I can't do it. I'm underage." And my father's background was in commercial art and photography, so he went downstairs and emerged a couple of hours later with, and he had permanently altered my birth certificate. So to make me 18 years old and you could not tell, I mean, it was, I still have it and you just can't tell that it was changed. Um, so it was very, very funny. So, um, I also joined the musicians union that year at 15 in New York. 18. And yeah, well, actually they knew I, they knew I was 15. They, okay. I, they knew, but even then they said, you're a year underage. And I said, but I'm getting this work. And so they let me join. But then, you know, I started pivoting more toward writing music when I was about 20 for a little studio in Connecticut. And we started expanding, doing more and more stuff. And then um, in, uh, yeah, it was 1980, um, my girlfriend that I was living with, Wendy Fraser, who's a great singer, turned out to be a very talented writer and great in the studio. We got the opportunity to submit on the Richard Simmons show. Uh, and we got that theme and the show unexpectedly became a big hit. And we were talking about it. We realized that um, to really capitalize on it, we had to move from New York to LA, which we so did the following. The move. Okay. Yeah, that it was purely pragmatic. I didn't picture myself, you know, on the beach playing volleyball. You know, it was it was a purely <laughs> pragmatic move. And uh, and it was the right it was the right move, you know, ultimately. Yeah. It, there are many more opportunities for what I wanted to do in Los Angeles at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you've lived in like kind of the top three music cities, right? Starting off in New York, L.A., and of course now based in Nashville. So even that gives you an incredible perspective of the the music scene, I think, in, in the States, because I think yeah. those three cities are kind of, you know, where, where it's at musically. Um, yeah, although although it's interesting because I often get asked, what was it like to be in the record business in L.A. in the 1980s and 90s? And I say, I have no idea. I was not in the record business. Yeah, I was in the film yeah. and I was in the film and television business, yeah. which wow. was very, very different. And I'll have to say far more disciplined also because okay. you had deadlines. So uh, you couldn't just hang out in the studio like, oh, let's see what comes today and let's work on the vocals today. It's like, no, I have to deliver an entire score by Wednesday. So it's it's a very different mindset. It's high pressure, I imagine. Yeah. Well. yeah. So, I mean, just from a, from a songwriting perspective. So while you were still in New York before you moved to L.A., were you exclusively writing, like for the studio that you were working at, were you writing exclusively stuff that was for TV and, and for film or were you writing songs as opposed to composing scores no it it wasn't um it wasn't on the level of film and tv yet there okay. it was more industrial shows uh okay. but good level clients like um well at the time now defunct pan am uh xerox oh, okay. karistan yeah. carpeting and these were trade shows okay so like sync like writing stuff for, for right commercial. but then also yeah then also educational films and then also some local jingles which is more akin to the the songwriting side, except 
you know, you're selling a product or a company or whatever. Um, and in 30 uh, seconds or however long you've got. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So again, that time, time usually about, Yeah. Usually about a minute. And, um, so the move to LA, well, first the, getting the Simmons show, that was my first national uh, television show. And then when Wendy and I moved to LA, we really had it in mind. You know, we saved every penny and all this. We were like, because we are not going to be working for at least a year. We figured that's how long it's going to take for us to even get our foot in the door, even with this credit. But actually, within three weeks of arriving, we got another theme song. Oh wow! Uh, or for another TV show for NBC, wow. uh, and I'll I'll never forget that we had to meet with the producer at the NBC lot in Burbank, and we'd only been there you know three weeks at this point. We drove to Burbank, and as we're walking to his office, uh, a blue Mercedes convertible went by us, and it was Johnny Carson of the Tonight Show. Oh and wow! <laughs> I remember turning to Wendy and I said, "Oh my God, we are really not New York anymore. We are." We are in Hollywood, so it's not uh, in Kansas anymore. Definitely yeah. not. We got John Carson. The, yeah, that's when it's like, oh my God, this is serious, and we're on the NBC lot, so it was, it was a lot of fun. Amazing. So, I mean, so when you got the the Richard Simmons, so that was that was you said twenty four, I think, right? If I remember my facts, yes. I'm reading. Yeah. So, at, like, what was the time scale between moving to LA and when things started to like when you met Patrick Swayze, basically, and and how long did it take for that? relationship and, and all of that to come together well it it it's a process this yeah. is what i always tell students i i hear uh some young oh i went to la for like uh you know eight months and it didn't work out and i said try five years before you jump to conclusions you've got to put the time in mm. so you know as great as having that theme song was and then subsequent work uh, it still wasn't exactly the work that I wanted to be doing, which was scoring to picture, right. you know, writing music to picture. Mm -hmm. And uh, that required getting an agent, which was then a catch 22. I would approach agents and they would say, well, you know, the music is fine, but we need to see what you can do with a piece of film, the dramatic. And uh, I said, well, how do I do that if I don't have an agent? And they said, well, you've got to figure that out. So. Um, Eventually, what happened in 1985 or 86, somewhere in there, so this is already four years later, Yeah, mm. I scored a uh, student film uh, called Chicken Thing, uh, which uh, ended up winning 30 awards around the world, uh, was seen by Steven Spielberg and all this. And the director of Chicken Thing, with whom I had become a good friend, Todd Holland, he got picked up by CAA, major agency, and I was picked up by Triad Artists, a major agency. By coincidence, Patrick Swayze was with Triad as an actor, but he and I were already friends. Right. So Did you look was, very close to each other. Am I right, right in thinking that? Right. So, yeah, like, um, I think it was about a year and a half after Wendy and I had moved to L.A., I had a friend who was a very good actor and musical comedy performer. Uh, and he knew that I was a good accompanist working with singers. I was, I did a lot of cabaret work in New York and, um, he asked me to play piano for him in a scene that he was doing in his acting class at the, uh, uh Beverly Hills Playhouse. 
And the scene went great, and it turned into a discussion with students and the teacher named Milton Kinsellis. And I was, Milton drew me into the con- conversation about musical theater and, you know, I was being asked, how did I know when to start the music? You know, just things like this. Mm. And um, the class took a break. About 60 people in the class, including a young Alec Baldwin, uh, mm-hmm. Tom Selleck was in the class, uh, President Reagan's daughter was in the class, wow. Amy Rogers. So uh, this guy came up to me on the break, and he had kind of this husky Texas drawl, and he said, hi, I'm Buddy. I really liked your playing and, um, uh, you know, and your thoughts on musical theater. And I was looking at him and I said, you know, you look really familiar. And so he said, well, have you seen The Outsiders? And I said, no. And then he said, have you seen Renegades? And I said, no. And now, now he's getting a little annoyed. And uh, then this blonde woman came over and he said, this is my wife, Lisa. And I said, okay, now I know. The two of you are always working on your sports car on the weekends on La Jolla Avenue. And they said, yeah, how do you know that? And I said, I live right around the block. From you. I pass you every weekend. And so we started hanging out, the four of us. I was still living with Wendy. And uh, we became fast friends. Excellent. And then a year later, so this is, this is 1984. Yeah. Uh, he was working on a movie called Grandview USA. And he called me up. And he said, hey, Grandview's looking for songs. I've had this idea for a song for a while, but I can't get anywhere with it. Do you want to work on it with me? Because he knew I was writing music for mm-hmm. TV. So I said, yeah, sure. You know, I knew he was very musical, that he had been in a band. He'd been on Broadway in the show Grease. So I knew he could sing. I said, come on over. So, you know, he was around the block. So he came over with his guitar in the evening. And I was at the piano and... um uh he had two chords c to e minor yeah and he just played those and but he had lists of lyrics like um you know four lines each verse verses and and the first line was she's like the wind through my tree she rides the night next to me which i found intriguing and then um i didn't like the third and fourth lines and told him so and so he said uh well what would you say so uh, I thought and you for told minute, him. <laughs> I told him. I just said, um, she leads me through moonlight only to burn me with the sun. And so he looked at me, he says, what does that mean? And I said, I don't care. Let's just write it down. <gasps> I was going to ask you what that meant because it's such a, a, a beautifully worded line. It's just very poetic, isn't it? Very poetic. But mm. I'm, it's got an abstract ambiguity about it that could mean well, a million things. It could mean a million things. To, in my mind, it was... There's a song from the Fantastics, a great musical that I love, where it's um, uh, the, the, the crux of the song is what's so scenic in the moonlight may seem cynic by the day, oh, and which, which always stayed with me. So it's like what seems so lovely in the moonlight in the harsh light of day can look like something completely different. Yes. So, um, um, so that, that's – and I, I was actually – jumping off the nature imagery in the first line of, you know, she's like the wind. Mm. So then I said, well, we've got to move it someplace musically. So we started to work on that and we came up with the, you know, A minor to B minor and the, and 
then we had this was over the course of two or three days. And when we realized that She's Like the Wind could be the hook of the song and not just the opening line, yeah. that's when we had something. And we did a, a, a smart thing at that point, which was we did a really good demo of it with uh, Patrick, whom I knew as Buddy. That was his nickname to family and friends. With uh, Buddy singing it, uh, my girlfriend Wendy doing a part on it, which ended up on the final version as well. Yeah, that's great. And I um, programmed the synths and drums and brought in a guitarist. And so we did this demo, but ultimately it was not used in Grandview, which turned out to be an incredible blessing because who's ever heard of Grandview USA? And, right. Uh, yeah, so, uh, um, but at the and time, so, though, did you feel a little bit deflated that it didn't get taken? Because, like, I mean, obviously, it's easy to look back on it now and go, oh, it was it was great that it didn't work. But, I mean, did you feel right. a little bit like, oh, you know, that's a shame? Oh, sure. I mean, rejection is rejection. Yeah. You know? So it's like, you know, it, it's still that, you know, little arrow to the heart that you have to get used to if you're going to be in anything related to a creative pursuit. Because not everybody's going to like what you do at every given moment. And there are too many people out there willing to voice their opinions, even though they're completely unqualified. So, uh, (laughs) fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Mark Twain wrote a whole short story about that, which is great. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it was. But, you know, my philosophy is, you know, having been in it for the long haul, even from the age of 15, was. Just keep going. Just, you know, don't look back and don't, you know, and and never blame anybody else. If something doesn't work, it's my fault. 100%. You know, it, it's because otherwise you fall into a victim frame of mind, which is terrible because then you become cynical instead of hopeful about what the future holds. So, I mean, again, another two years passed. It's now 1986. So I'd been in L.A. for five years. Now I have an agent um, beginning to get considered for um, film work. Actually, I think I was working on my first feature, which was called Return to Horror High, uh, which has achieved a certain degree of cult status. Um, I'll be looking that up later, Stacey. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's notable for being one of George Clooney's first movies. Oh, OK. Interesting. Yeah, so, uh, um um, anyway, um, and I knew about the project Dirty Dancing, uh, uh, but he had had a, uh, barbecue out at his ranch. He had moved from around the block after he did the show North and South. He, he, he and Lisa bought a small ranch, um, a little North of LA. And, um, I had met the writer of Dirty Dancing, Eleanor Bergstein, and uh, the choreographer was there, uh, Kenny Ortega. And we were talking about the project. And it was a little low-budget movie. Um, and, you know, they started filming on their locations in Virginia and uh, Lake Lure, North Carolina. Uh, and the word on the street was that this was going to be a movie that was not going to be very good and that it was going to go straight to video after one week in the theaters. And that would be the end of it because the company that was producing it, Vestron, this was their first feature film. They were only known for home video at this point. 
So that's what they thought the marketing was going to be. So anyway, in I guess it was the early fall of 1986, Patrick called me from North Carolina and said, hey, I played the demo of She's Like the Wind for the producers of Dirty Dancing and the director, and they love it, and they want to use it. And by this point, you know, I said, are you sure they're not just jerking you around because you're the star of the movie? And he said, no, no, no. Matter of fact, there's a guy named Jimmy Einer who wants to talk to you. And I had heard of him. He was a big record executive. Yeah. He had his own label at one point. Um, and so uh, I was like, okay, let's. Uh, so I called Jimmy Einer in New York. And he said, yeah, we, we definitely want to use it. Um, we're going to do a soundtrack. Um, uh, all this. So, you know, let, let us know who to talk to about, you know, arranging for the license, you know, and all that stuff. Um, and uh, so then it was interesting. He said, who's the girl on the demo? And I said, well, that's my girlfriend, Wendy. And he said, is she signed to a label? And I said, no. And he said, okay, great, because she's fantastic and we want to use her on the final version. Because, of course, wow. low budget, right? So if she was signed to a label, it would have been a no-go zone at that point, I'm assuming? Right. They would have had to negotiate something with the label. And at that point, were you or Patrick signed with a publisher or how how did all no. that work? Because at this point, it's just a demo existing, right, that you guys had done. Right. And I, I've never been signed to a publisher. Yeah. Oh, uh, interesting. I, be, yeah. Because in the scoring world, you don't want to be signed to a publisher because it's a work for hire. Right. So you need to be able to turn over your publishing to the entity that's hiring you, not your writer's share. I still keep that, mm-hmm. but the publisher's mm-hmm. share goes to say ABC or whomever is, you know, hiring me. Right. So it was better to not have to deal with a publisher, you know, again, getting, Hey, can I have permission to do this TV? Yeah. Film? Oh no, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Right. It was just but interesting. What ended up happening was from a business side, because I knew the business well, and I had a good lawyer. Now, at this point, I'm with Triad Artists, as is Patrick. So I said to Patrick, I, I called him, and I said, you know what? We should let Triad make the deal for us, mm. because we're both clients, and that way we're coming from a more a position of power where we're doing everything in unison, which we've done ever since then. Um, and uh, so he thought that was a good idea. So, uh, my music agent at triad, uh, my first agent, Brian Gersh called Vestron and the producers and said, well, you don't have enough money to buy this song. So you're going to have to license it. And that means my clients are going to keep hundred percent of their own publishing. And that's the way it worked out. So I've always owned my own publishing on my half of the song, which turned out to be you know, unbelievable. Yeah. So well, of course. Yeah. Right. So because they only had, you know, I think two or $3,000 to license the song. And so the, the deal was made, it goes into the movie and it's still another almost year till the movie comes out. So it's really off my radar. I mean, emotionally, intellectually, I had moved on to the scoring stuff that I was doing. Um, uh, Wendy was on the road at this point with, as a backup singer with the actor, Ben Vereen. Um, so we were, you know, all doing different things. Oh, also in the business side, because Wendy and I were together when the deal was made, she got a feature 
on the album where it says featuring Wendy Fraser, and she got a point on the sales of the record. Nice. So, which at the time was meaningless until it started selling. It was meaningless and, right up until the point where it wasn't anymore, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and that was a good thing because she and I split up three weeks before the single was released after wow. like almost eight years together. And so it was so weird having it be a hit song on the radio and I'm constantly hearing her voice. So it was, uh, it was, it was great. So uh, I was like, Oh God. Um, uh, so, uh, um, but yeah, it was, it was like this passage of time. And then in early August of 1987, the album was released before the film. Uh, there was a mistiming. Before between, the film. Yeah, it was, there was a mistiming between the record company, RCA, and the release of the film. And they released Time of My Life as the first single, and both tanked. I mean, they just never even, I mean, maybe a tiny blip on the charts, and then off. Then the movie came out. And the record label, RCA, re-released everything, the, the album and the time of my life, and both basically shot to number one. Um, and that's when everything started to shift. And the um, um, guy that produced She's Like the Wind and Time of My Life, Michael Lloyd, who's an excellent record producer, hmm. called me. Uh, and... Um, because uh, I was at all the sessions for for the song, and actually, I ended up playing all the synthesizer parts on the song. I was reading up on that. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. a little bit so, of OVA in there. Yeah, because they wanted me to uh, recreate what I did on the demo. Yeah, nice. Uh, so um, anyway, Michael Lloyd called me. This is probably now September of 1987, and he said, "Hey, guess what? You're getting a gold record for the soundtrack." This is, you know, well before my song was released because it was Time My Life, then Hungry Eyes, then She's Like the Wind. And um, so I said, oh, great. You know, I've never gotten a gold record. That's fantastic, you know. And uh, uh, Wendy was going to get one as well. Um, and uh, uh, so I didn't know how it worked. I thought, oh, okay, um, it comes in the mail or it's delivered. Or what so about a week and a half, no more than two weeks later, I called Michael and I said, hey, do you know what the process is? You know, when do I get the gold record? He said, oh, you're not getting a gold record. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, now you're getting a platinum record, which for, you know, people not familiar with U.S., that's went from 500,000 in sales to a million in sales yeah. in the space of a couple of weeks. Wow. And um, I said, you're kidding. And he said, no, last Sunday, the album sold 230,000 copies. Wow. And I, I said, on Sunday. And he said, yeah. And he said, we're riding a wave and nobody knows where this is taking us. Yeah. And then um, by the time I did get my platinum record, it was triple platinum. Wow. And um, the one behind me that you guys can see is 11 times platinum. And I'm ordering a new one because I found out that last year it was recertified to 14 times platinum. So 14 million records in the U.S. and Canada alone. What about worldwide? So, yeah, how, you know. What worldwide, they think it's about 45 million records. And it's, it's actually, in the, in the 
top five top selling soundtracks of all time. It's in the top 30 selling best selling records of all time. And it's the number one best selling record of all time in Germany. So that I find fascinating. That is fascinating. Uh, you think all the German artists and all the, but the number one selling album in Germany was Dirty Dancing. And it's it, huge in the UK. I mean, it's still, yeah. yes, you know, very much. I, I don't know if you guys saw that ad campaign that Virgin Media was doing, with the cow riding a motorcycle, but that was in, in the UK and they had to license the song for it. It ran. It's from, still. It's still regularly played on uh, Radio Two, which is actually sounds like yeah. the second favorite radio station, but it's not. It's actually the the, the it's bigger than Radio One these days, and it's still yeah. a regular. It's the place feature. to be. Radio yeah. Two is the place to be. <laughs> regularly yeah, featured it, on that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing, but so it it you know, and then our song was released in December of eighty seven, and peaked in um, you know early part of the next year. Um, and it was a, a phenomenon. It was it was something that none of us had anticipated, least of all uh, Patrick. I mean, he just because all of a sudden now he's the most famous person in the world. Mm, right. It absolutely I, catapulted him to yeah. stardom, didn't it? Um, yeah. And I mean, is that I mean, I think is that the only song that he released like was that was that the one and the only Patrick Swayze song, or did he ever release anything else after that, or was that just the the pinnacle it, of it? There, it was the only song that was released to radio, right? But he had other songs. Um, he and I had co-written a song for Roadhouse. Oh yeah, uh, okay. Which, which is in Roadhouse for I don't know thirty seconds in a car radio or something like that. But it was on the soundtrack album. Okay, I but, didn't realize he was involved in the writing for that. It's wicked. It's cool. Yeah, and then. Yeah, um, he co-wrote a song, uh, who did he write it with? I think Larry Gatlin for the movie um, uh, Next of Kin. Next of oh, Kin was oh, okay. Liam Neeson. Uh, yeah. Underrated movie, actually. It's, and, a, it's uh, a good movie. It's a really yeah. good movie. Yeah. So he had, he had a song in that called Brothers. Um, look that up. And uh, I even, I seem to remember that his brother Donnie sang on it. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, so uh, Donnie was also incredibly talented actor and dancer, and um, uh, you know, uh, you know, just talented family. But uh, but yeah, so it was just a wild ride that you know we were on of all of a sudden everything changing. And I remember uh, it was early 1988 in LA. So the single had been out for a number of weeks and was climbing the charts rapidly. And my parents were in L.A. And we're driving around and I heard on the radio and Patrick Swayze is at the warehouse record store on Fairfax Avenue signing copies of his new single, She's Like the Wind. And that was like two blocks from where we were. And so I said, hey, let's go take a look, see if anybody shows up. And we get there. And there's a line of about 3,000 people wow. out the door and a police presence with barriers and, you know, keeping the line orderly. And I turned to my parents and I said, God, this is unbelievable. I said, I got to go take a look inside. So I didn't think I was going to be able to get all of us in there. But I said, you just wait here. And so there was a security guard by the front of the store. And I said, could you get somebody to tell Patrick 
that Stacy's here. And so he goes inside and then like a minute later comes out and he says, yeah, come on in. And so there was this riser, you know, stage set up and mm. he's up on there, this line of people just going up and he's signing copies and he brings me up on the stage and introduced me to the crowd and all this is oh. my co and it was, I'm just looking at this and I looked at him and I said, geez, this is amazing. And at this point, he had done one of these in New York City also. And uh, the comment in the New York Times was they hadn't seen anything like it since the Beatles. When uh, you started describing it, that was the image that was coming to my mind. Was This was yeah, like, it was, yeah, the non-British invasion. But I, it was I, like- <laughs> right. but I think that's the kind of level that this, the, the, the song, the soundtrack, like you said, it was one of the the big breakthrough soundtracks for any movie. Yeah. The soundtracks have obviously been released before that and stuff, but for, in my mind, it may just be because it was my time and my era, but I remember that being the first kind of level soundtrack that was, I can, it could have been the album in its own right without the movie. Yeah, it, it was also an interesting record when you think about it because it was a mix of old music and new music. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, what, that's what made the movie interesting too from a musical perspective. You have, you know, you have Ronnie Spector on the one hand and then you have Time My Life, but they brought a little element of the old time into that even by getting um, uh, the guy from the Righteous Brothers to do it. You know, so... Uh, um, uh, uh, so it, it was a very uh, imaginative soundtrack, um, but it's it's still interestingly not the best selling soundtrack. I think that goes to uh, Sound of Music. Okay. That yeah. that's yeah, and then I think in there is also uh, you know Saturday Night Fever, right? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, the Bodyguard and uh, Flashdance. I think I mean, those are not the- bad company to be in, though, right? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've, just, uh, I've just searched. Yeah, Bodyguard, Grease, Grease. Oh, okay. Titanic, Dirty Dancing, Sound of Music, Saturday Night Fever, which is the um, the Bee Gees, is, is actually in sixth position. Wow! And so yeah. it's it's moved around. Yeah. Uh, so Bodyguard is the number one. You said. Yeah, Bodyguard is number one. Titanic wow. number two. Dirty Dancing number three. I, I would be incredibly proud to be at number three behind those two massive <laughs> soundtracks if I but it just shows the kind of the longevity. Those movies came out 20, 20 odd years after your your um feature in that movie. So yeah, it's um that that I think is is actually hits on an element that you know it's it's wonderful at the time to have this hit song on the radio, but there's also an element of this joy will fade because a song has a shelf life yeah, and a, you know, a record has a shelf life and eventually it'll be off the radio and you can refer to it in the past tense. And it was that way for about 10 years or so. And then it just started to churn back. And I, and then, you know, coming out on DVD and all that, it just kept yep. reigniting. And anytime you turned on the television, the movie was on. And it's just kept it in the popular imagination for all these years. And it's still going as well, Stacey, because yeah. um, uh, my sister went to see the the kind of Dirty Dancing on stage, the show yeah. that's been touring around the UK. Um, it's not so much a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you might know more, but I don't think it's, believe it's like a musical story set to the, 
the soundtrack is more just like they're just bringing the essence of all those songs onto a, st- a touring stage show, which is just superb as well. Well, there, there are two shows currently touring. So there's Dirty Dancing on Stage, which is an actual theatrical production that recreates the movie and more. They add a lot of stuff to make, fill it out. And, you know, songs are performed live and things like this. Although, interestingly, She's Like the Wind is done as an instrumental uh, behind a a scene. So it's um, uh, because I got I saw the show in London at the. Yeah, at the Old Witch Theater in 2010, its first run, um, and uh, turned in the lobby, and by coincidence, Eleanor Bergstein, the writer of the show, was standing wow. next to me. So, and I hadn't seen her in 20 years, so that was a little strange. Uh, but, um, but there's another thing touring, which is called Dirty Dancing in Concert, which is where they show the movie. And then they have a band on stage in front of the screen performing songs as the movie goes on. Oh. And then there's a like a, a concert afterward where they perform the songs, uh, you know, full length, mm. and people can dance and sing along and all that. And um, um, so there, these two entities um, where we've had words with the Dirty Dancing in concert because we're not receiving a royalty from that. Oh, wow. Uh, because they claim it's not a theatrical production, therefore it's just a normal, and we're saying, well, no, look at your ticket prices. Yeah. But Dirty, dirty Dancing on Stage, because the song is considered an integral part of the dramatic flow of the show, we do receive a royalty for that. Interesting. So uh, it, it's, it's quite fascinating. Matter of fact, Dirty Dancing in Concert is going to be here in Nashville on December 8th, uh, Belmont University. So I'm curious to see if they reach out to me. Uh, Why would you not? I, I don't understand people like this. We, you know, when, when you're kind of profiting you're there, of right? somebody else's like you work. Live there. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're yeah. there. It's Why like, would you come not? On. Yeah, absolutely. Just show yeah. up, Stacey. Don't need to be invited. Just show up. <laughs> well, it's, it's very funny. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, that I was president of Nashville Film Festival. And in 2009, we had gotten a new artistic director who was great. And um, he got us a really good opening night film for the festival, which was uh, 500 Days of Summer right. uh, with uh, Zoe Deschanel and um, mm. uh, whatever his name, Joseph Gordon Levitt. Anyway, uh, now six months earlier, uh, I was approached by a music supervisor and they wanted a license. She's like the wind for 500 days of summer. Right. Uh, so we, you know, saw the scenes that they wanted it to use and which were very funny. And uh, uh, I think I was dealing with Patrick's lawyer. Um, yeah. Uh, Patrick was very sick at this point, mm-hmm. um, but um, we ultimately worked out, you know, a deal for the the movie, which was good for everybody. And um, so now, six, seven months later, it's the opening night film for the film festival. And I'm president. So the opening night, I'm down there. The director of the film is next to me, Mark Webb. Um, Then the new artistic director, Brian, then the executive director of the film festival. And I had the mic and I'm 
you know, greetings, welcome to, you know, the, I think it was at that time, the uh, 40th uh, Nashville Film Festival. Uh, and, um, you know, by weird chance, I said to the audience, a song of mine is in this movie. And so I said, that means only one thing. It means you have to sit in your seats while the credits roll. And when my name comes up on the screen, I want you all to start cheering and applauding wildly. And so everybody's laughing and all this. And then a guy that I knew from BMI Broadcast Music appeared at the top of the stairs in the theater and came walking down with this big blue envelope. And I didn't, you know, this was not planned, at least on my end. And uh, uh, he took the mic from me and he said to the audience, um, you know, I, BMI presents certificates for each million airplays, uh, for U.S. airplays. And he said, I've had the happy occasion to present one million a few times. More rarely, I present a two million airplay award. He said, on very rare occasions, I get to present the three million airplay award. He said, but tonight, it's my honor to present the four million airplay award for She's Like the Wind. Wow. And I, I was completely surprised. I mean, I had no idea. I knew it was nearing four million, but for them to choose to do this at the festival, and I turned to Mark Webb, the director, and I said, did you know about this? And he said, yeah. So everybody knew. And then he said, uh, funny, he said, I guess Nashville is the only city in the world where the president of the film festival has a song in my movie. <laughs> so I said, yeah, that's actually probably true. So uh, uh, anyway, it was a very memorable uh, moment. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, when my credit came up, I started yelling. I said, see, see, everybody start applauding. So it was, it was very funny. <laughs> So, so just kind of going back to what what prompted the move? Because obviously you've had this this huge success and you're riding this wave of success. And then what what sort of led from the move to, from LA to Nashville? What what brought that on? What was the the? Well, the I always had a love hate. Always had a love hate relationship with Los Angeles. I certain things I loved about it, um, and um, the attitude within the industry is something I never particularly cared for. And um, um, in 1997 or so, 98, I think it was, I'd co-written some new songs uh, that were demoed, and they, they sounded good. They sounded like they had some potential, and one of them evidently was getting some ears on it in Nashville. And I went to Michael Lloyd, the record producer, and I said, will you listen to these songs? And tell me what's what, because I can never judge my own work. And the thing I really like about Michael is if he doesn't like something, he'll tell you, and you know there's no agenda behind it. Right. He, he is honest, and you need people in your life when you're creative that are going to be honest with you um, when you know it's not a competitive thing. So anyway, he said, well, these songs are really good, and you should start going to Nashville to write with people. And I said, nah, I don't know anybody in Nashville. And he said, well, take a trip there. He said, I'll set you up with some meetings. BMI is based there. 
uh, by this time I was a William Morris client and he said, William Morris has an office there. Mm -hmm. So get your agent to introduce you to the office there and, you know, take, take some meetings. He said, don't approach anybody about publishing deals or anything like this. Just take meetings. And, um, I did. And I ended up then booking, uh, another trip for about two months later this time, you know, like a 10 day writing trip collaboration with different mm -hmm. people. Um, and, uh, I came back from that trip with kind of my head going like, you know, that's a really fun, creative environment. And what I liked especially was the fact that the creatives got respect that, which you don't get in LA, you know, it's, it's, you know, what, gets you respect in LA was how well your last project did and how much money you have. So it's, uh, um, in Nashville, there was more of this, um, a, a, uh, well, you experienced it with Gretchen Peters. Yeah. It's a, exactly in that workshop that you and I were in. It's exactly that type of support. Um, and, um, but I wasn't ready to make any type of move because I was really on this role with TV movies at this point, uh, by the end of the nineties, I scored 21 movies of the week for the networks wow. in the space of about four years and, and with a couple of other things thrown in. And, um, but then toward the end or toward middle of 2000, I was in a weird headspace. The, um, TV music business was changing. Uh, in a way that I didn't care for. They were ordering less TV movies or almost none. Um, and they were moving toward game shows and reality shows. And I was like, do I really want to stick around for this and be beating you know, my head against the wall with my agent trying to get that type of work that I don't even really care for? So all of this was going through my head, but still was not say, I'm going to move. You know, but I was living in a beautiful spot in Malibu by this point. And on a Sunday, uh, my doorbell rang and it was a real estate agent. Uh, and he said, um, do you want to sell your about house? Sundays, record yeah. sales on Sundays, yeah. people just knocking on your door saying, I want to buy your house on a Sunday. They, they, well, they figure you're going to be in. <laughs> So, Fair uh, enough. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I looked at him and I said, you know, you're catching me on a funny weekend. Um, why? And he said, well, your neighborhood's become hot and you have one of the best spots in the neighborhood because I can see the ocean and the mountains from my oh, property, beautiful. which I know sounds awful, but um, yeah, heartbreaking. <laughs> so then he told me what I, he thought I could get for it, which was a lot more than I had paid for it. And I knew at that point what the value of property was in Nashville, which was, you know, a third of what it was in LA. And so I said, well, you know, okay, let's list it and see what happens. And five week, five days later, the house was sold. And seven weeks later, I was driving across country. Wow. So it was, it was like, it almost was just go with it. And I remember it was the kick you needed to sort of right. make, make up your mind to go. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I remember calling my accountant who's still my accountant after 40 years, who's been a great advisor on life, you know, issues and real estate and things like this. And I told him and he said, do it, just go. Just because, like the Nike ad. Yeah. Just, do just, it. <laughs> just, just go. And because he said, you can set yourself up there 
where you don't have to worry about certain mm. things anymore and you can just be, you can just be. So, um, anyway, so I made the move then and, uh, that led to all sorts of other, uh, paths and many of them completely unexpected. Mm. It sounds like a fascinating kind of story from, from New York to LA to Nashville. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you kind of have just taken opportunities as they've came to you, as they've arrived. You've obviously been working very hard as well, I'm sure. But um, I, you sound like a flagship uh, huh. a person for kind of, you know, the, the riding of that wave and just taking those opportunities when they're presented to you. You've not wasted one of those opportunities. You've ran with it. You've worked hard and and you've just seen where where life can take you and look at this amazing story that you've got to tell. And it's yeah, not over yet. <laughs> yeah, it's not over yet. But but yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Again, when I sometimes am asked to guest lecture in classes or whatever, one of the things I always say to the students, I, I said, it's great to be focused. You know, keep, you know, goals ahead of you. Said, but do not wear blinders while you're focused because life occurs on the periphery very often. Yes, love that. And so, so you're you're moving ahead in what you perceive as a line, and then all of a sudden you go, "Oh, what's that over there? Let's go take a look at that." And so you go and take a look. Like you know, in 1984, this actor called me and said, "Hey, I have an idea for a song. You want to work on it?" And I could have easily said, thought to myself, "Ah, what does he know about music? Forget it." You know, you let them write you it. You were focusing on your scoring and stuff at the time. Right. If you hadn't, right. no. Oh. But you know, you just you just don't know. And the other thing is, I always say because because of the fact that you don't know, if you get something that seems, you know, mid level or lower, you know, still do the best job that you possibly can on it because you don't know. It's it was the same thing with the student film that I did, Chicken Thing, where. You know, I I found that through an ad in uh, Dramalogue magazine, um, and it said, you know, UCLA graduate film needs classic nineteen uh, fifties suspense horror score, which was right up my alley. And um, you know, this is before I, this is what led to me getting my agent. Mm. And so I sent some music to the post office box, and I got a call from this guy. Todd Holland, and he said, yeah, um, I want to screen. I like the music. I'm considering a few composers. Um, I'd like to screen the rough cut for you tomorrow so that you can see what you're dealing with. And it was a 12-minute movie. So he showed it to me. It was the black and white rough cut. So no music, no sound effects, you know, none of that. And it was... Fantastic. It was just the only maybe two lines of dialogue in the whole thing. So the rest is told visually. And I watched this saying, I can't believe this is a student film because that special effects in it and all this stuff that he had built by hand. And um, when it was done, uh, and he and I have talked about this um, on a little, you know, uh, video thing that he did. What stunned him was he was sitting a few rows behind me, which is a power thing. And um, and I turned to him as soon as it was done. And I said, I have to do this movie. And he looked at me and he said he was taken aback by how 
forceful I was. And I said, I know exactly what this movie needs. I know how to write it. I know how to record it. And I have to do this movie. And so, you know, he was a little dubious and he said, you know, well, how would you, I want an orchestral score. And I said, I have this new state of the art sampler called the emulator two. And I can build it with that with strings and pipe organ and piano and harp and all this stuff. And um, he was still a little, I said, tell you what, come to my apartment tomorrow and I will show you what the machine is capable of and the sounds. And um, so we made arrangements for that. So I went home and I remember I was in the living room and Wendy was in the kid. We were still living together at this point. And I wrote the theme for Chicken Thing. Uh, I, I was thinking about the movie so much and I just came up with this musical idea. And Wendy, I remember Wendy pointed, she said, what's that? And I said, I think it's the theme for this short film. And so Todd came over the next day and I showed him the machine and all that. And I said, you know, let's uh, have a cup of coffee in the living room and talk. And so um, he was on the couch and I sat at the piano and he said, well, you know, creatively, like, you know, what, what direction do you think the music should take? And so I said, well, maybe something like this. And I played him this thing and he went, wow, what's that from? That's great. Your and movie. I said, and I said, it's the theme for chicken thing. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I wrote it last night. And so he called me the next day and he said, yeah, I want you to do the movie. <laughs> and, and awesome. again, unexpected, I did the best I possibly could with it, um, even changed some of the things that he wanted to do. And then he gave me suggestions on things that were fantastic. It was this great collaboration. Mm. And then the movie was screened at UCLA as part of their graduate program, got a standing ovation. And then it started making the rounds in LA. And he, uh, Todd called me very excitedly and he said that he had just come home from work. He was working as a waiter and he had come home from work and uh, Steven Spielberg was on his answering machine saying, I just saw a chicken thing and I want to talk to you. And so, um, so it just showed, you know, it was like, yeah, this is an opportunity. I knew that it was really good. And I knew that I had to be equal to the task of the three years of blood and sweat that this guy put into making this movie. Mm. So, um, so yeah, that was an example of, you know, take the opportunity and, you know, the thing that's fascinating about it for me, whenever I think back on these things is like turning to him and saying, I have to do this movie in another part of my reptile brain. There's a part of me saying, no, you can't do this movie. And it's this level of insecurity that I have to battle constantly That's to be able to be able to move forward. It's almost like I have to use competing fears. There's the fear of losing the opportunity, the fear of failure, and the fear of, um, you know, turning it down. So it's it's all these different things. And, you know, basically, you know, I just want to curl up on a on the couch in the fetal position, make everybody go away. So it's it's um, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Um, 
uh, even at the, the workshop that we attended with Gretchen in yes. Italy, my first couple of attempts at the morning notes were basically ripping into myself, saying, you're a fraud, you're this, you know, um, you know, what are you trying to prove being here and all this? And then I find that so fascinating because my morning pages were saying exactly the same thing, but you have records hanging on your wall. This, see, this is from my perspective, I find it so fascinating and it kind of just that baseline of the, the humility of being a creative, that it doesn't matter how much success you've had or perceived to have, that we're all just these fragile human beings who are scared of being judged and not getting it right. Do you know what I mean? It's a constant, yeah, I, I, right? Yeah. I worked with, um, on a, a few TV shows. We're still great friends to this day. One of the greatest guitarists in the world named Jeff Skunk Baxter, who was in the Doobie Brothers and Steely yes. Dan. You know, so we, we were teamed up by my agent to work on some TV shows. And here would be sitting in his studio uh, working on a scene and he does this incredible guitar thing. And uh, uh, I don't know if I can say this word or not. He turned to me and say, hey, was that shit or ice cream? <laughs> I love that saying. <laughs> like, everybody questions their work. Yeah. Everybody. But that is just so, um, somehow, I don't know, I find that really just amazing that yeah. we all, when you boil it all down, everybody's got that same insecurity because otherwise you sit there and think that it's just me that feels like that, or it's just, right. but actually the difference is which part of your brain you listen to, like you were saying, you know, is it the fetal position on the sofa or is it the, I'm scared of losing this opportunity. So I'm just going to find a way to go for it. Um, and actually I think that's something that a lot of creative people need to hear is that, you know, that's the difference, right? Yeah, it, it is actually saying yes and throwing yourself into it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a case once where um, I had done a couple of documentaries for a company in L.A. called ABC Kane. They had these beautiful uh, wildlife documentaries that were like they're, uh, ABC's equivalent of National Geographic. And they were uh, primetime specials. This was in the 90s. And um, I'd done two for them already. Uh, and I got a call from the music supervisor uh, one day, Nancy, whom I knew well. And uh, she was like, and I, I, it was a message on my answering machine saying, um, can you call me as soon as possible? Uh, we have an issue with a score that we got back from London for our latest show. And so I called her and she said, can you come in tomorrow? This was like March 2nd. And she said, can you come in tomorrow to take a look at the show and read through the score and listen? Because we're thinking we may need you to punch up the score. And so I went over to the offices the next day and I watched the show, which was about orangutans being repatriated to the wild, which was incredibly emotional. And orangutans are this, you know, so close to humans. Hmm. And the score was, you know, like, oh, look at the pretty animals. It was like, bup, 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 bup. It, was, it was not emotional. Yeah. And so I turned to them when after it was a one hour show. And I said, this can't be punched up. It's just it's missing the point. And so they said, well, what do you recommend? And I said, you've got to rescore. You've got to do a whole new score. And so um, they said, well, here's the issue. This show airs March 17th. And so I said, okay, it's now March 3rd. 
So if you want me to rescore this, you need, need to make a decision within the next 20 minutes because I need to start working on this this afternoon. Today. Yeah. And um, so they said, okay, can you go out in the hall and we can talk? And I went out in the hall and it suddenly hit me what I had claimed that I was supposed to be able to do. <laughs> and I sat down in the hallway like with my head saying, what did I just say to them? This is impossible. And then the elevator door opened and it was the head of the company, Dennis Kane. And he knew me by this point. And I, you know, jumped up and he said, so what do you think? I said, you've got to rescore. He said, can you do it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then he said, okay, I'm going to tell them that that's the way to go. See, he goes into the office. I collapse back on the floor <laughs> and he comes out again with the other, and I jump back up and they say, okay, go, we'll start to get you to the notes. Personality. I'm confident. I'm really not confident. Right. The trick is to make other people think you're confident. That's the trick. Oh, goodness me. That's a great story. That's the trick. And it's such a, such a great lesson. it, it, It was, I did it. And the producers were so pleased that they threw a party for the air, the night that it aired on March 17th had me at the party and all these people were coming up to me saying, we just heard that you started on this on March 3rd and it's now March 17th. And I said, yeah. And they said, there was a lot of music. And I said, yeah. Yeah. And there was probably uh, a lot of coffee involved as well. I should imagine. A a lot of coffee, a lot of, you know, um, uh, the first person that I called on my way back home, I was living, where was I at that point? I, I I think I was in Venice or Mal. No, I might I was in Malibu. I can't remember. But um, anyway, I called my agent first thing, and I said, "Okay, we know what they've been paying me for the last couple of projects I did for them. This one gets fifty percent more because it's combat pay." Yeah, because they, they they want it that fast. That means I have to have nothing else in my life, so they've got to pay me yeah. for that. So, um, you know, so there's the business part of it, too. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it, it, it actually worked out great. And then I did one more documentary for them um, on the plight of the black rhinoceros. And I got nominated for an Emmy for that one. So uh, which was yeah. which was great. Oh. So, yeah. So it, it is, you know, you, you have to convince yourself that you can get it done and then get past the the ranks and, and files and statements in your head telling you yeah. that no you you can't do this so it's um it's, it's a it's common hard. theme it's a common theme amongst creative people we, we were talking oh, yeah. about imposter syndrome just before you uh you joined us um to record the podcast today weren't we Tara it's it's it, a lot of people who talk to us in our kind of songwriting community and uh friends and in, in the creative world it is a common theme amongst people at all levels all yeah levels. It, it, it doesn't it, it's it's interesting i had the honor and pleasure of meeting quincy jones and sitting in his kitchen with him and to talk to him for an hour because i was friends with his eldest daughter jolie and um so he i thought i was going to meet him for five minutes because he was having a party that evening for his youngest daughter and um uh but it he came into the kitchen and just started asking me questions. And what I realized 
within about 10 minutes was his great talent besides all his musical talent is that when he talks to you, you're the only person in the world. And I started to think, imagine what that does for an artist when you're in the studio with him, that all of a sudden you are the only thing that he cares about in that moment. It, it It was incredible. So he said, yeah, Jolie tells me you're in music and all this. I said, yeah, these days, I've been doing a lot of scoring work for television. And he got up off the kitchen stool and started bowing to me. And I started to laugh. And I said, why is Quincy Jones bowing to me? He says, because you do the hardest job in all of music. Between having to be creative on demand that fast. And he said that he did a TV show back in the 60s that I remembered called Ironside. And he said he did one season of it, had a nervous breakdown, and had to be hospitalized. Wow. Uh, Of course, in his case, the hospital was in Tahiti. So, uh, (laughs) so, but, uh, and I thought he was, you know, exaggerating. Yeah, I had a nervous breakdown. And I was laughing. And then Jolie was walking through the room and she said, no, he had a nervous breakdown. He really did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. And um, uh, so it was like, okay, you know, this can happen to all of us. I mean, I have never done any scoring before, but I can only imagine how difficult it must be because you, you've you got no lyrics to work with. This is purely reading the emotion of what's going on on the scene and having right. to find a way to portray that through nothing other than the instruments that you have. You know, I mean, it, 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 right. I can see how it must be incredibly difficult and overwhelming. So yeah, and, about that another time. And you, you wake up in the morning, you know, knowing there's this deadline looming and every morning you wake up saying, I just can't do this anymore. I've, I've lost my talent. Wow. My talent is gone. So today is going to be a total waste. And then you have breakfast. I would have breakfast and I'd walk my dogs. And the show would be running in my head like a constant loop. Yeah. And um, um, I would get back home and say, okay, you did it yesterday. Now just go in and do what you did yesterday and do it again. Yeah. So that. That was the, the, the hardest one that I ever had was a, a cartoon series for ABC. Um, I had to turn in 22 minutes of finished music uh, every six days and uh, wow. um, do that for three months on end. So on the seventh day, start the next episode. Wow. So that, That's relentless. That is relentless. So, I mean, in comparison to that scene, obviously being in Nashville, and I know some of the collaborative work that you've done there. Um, I mean, Doc Walker is quite close to my heart being, you know, Manitoba uh, boys and, you know, the whole Winnipeg connection there. But I mean, do you find that less stressful or just a different type of stress or how, how does it even compare? Is it like apples and oranges, like different? Yeah, it's apples because I, I always somehow managed to find a way to put myself into stressful position. Um, <laughs> like podcasts so with, with We Write Songs. <laughs> well, or, or leadership roles, you know, like yeah. you said, president of five different organizations. Then I ran for public office and you want something stressful, be a, an elected official for four years in local wow. politics. That's truly, you have a crowd of rooms, people in a room yelling at you, you know? So, uh, uh, and you have to listen to them. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, and it's funny because now with the photography, I had somebody a couple of years when I, or a few years ago say to me, do you think you're going to do the same thing to the photography that you did with music and that just put all this pressure on yourself and it becomes a job? And I said, 
I'm consciously trying not to do that. Good. Good. And, um, and are uh, you succeeding in not making it stressful for yourself? Good. Yes. But, but even then it's, it's, you know, like uh, actually tomorrow I'm delivering eight photographs to Nashville airport. They're doing a show of my work. Oh, fantastic. uh, Which which is great. I mean, you know, they, uh, 64 submissions for three spots and I got one of them, which is great. And the show is, you'll like this. The show is called nonstop Nashville to London. Uh, so it's four photos from Nashville and four photos from London. Brilliant. Uh, And, um, but even that, it's like, oh, what photos do I choose? Do, you know, there's this, there's this, you know, all this stuff that goes along with it instead of just being, oh, this is, you know, a, a wonderful thing. And I always have to remind myself of what I've told people. I said, my biggest mistake following in the immediate aftermath of She's Like the Wind becoming a hit was not enjoying it enough. Right, interesting. So because you're starting, you know, to think, Oh, how do I use this as a springboard to the next thing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and people are gathering, you know, you write a hit song all of a sudden, there are people in your ear saying, Oh, you should sign with this publisher, you should do this, you should do this. Um, it creates pressure, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think as as songwriters who have not had a hit song, you know, you sort of think the pinnacle is like to have that hit. But yeah, then it's like, well, what comes next? And how do right. you how do you mentally navigate that as and well how do as you move on from that? And yeah, what, what is right. the next and, point? Yeah. and not chase the hit. Yes. Because that's what I did in the aftermath for a few years, which ultimately led to me around 1990 or so stopping writing songs and concentrating back on the scoring. And I think because I switched that mindset, that's when I just started to get everything that my agent put me up for in the scoring world. Um, And, but then in the mid nineties, I started writing songs again from a more heartfelt perspective. Mm -hmm. And that led me to Nashville. So it was, and I remember a meeting at, um, Columbia Records or CBS with a, a very prominent AR guy named Jay Landers. And he's listening to new song. This is like 1989 or so. And he said, you know, these songs are very good. These are, but you need another She's Like the Wind. And I almost hurtled myself across his desk to choke him to death. Oh, I can because, imagine. It's a quite a slap in the face, really. And as I'm throttling him, I would be saying, we all need another cheese like the wind. We all need another. Because it was just, you know, it was like every playing into every insecurity and fear of like, yeah. okay, I've had this one. Can I get another? And when I stop finally chasing that and say, you know what? This is fantastic. That that's when it became a truly enjoyable thing. Oh, that's such a it, interest. It's just so interesting hearing your story. And even though we had a week together, I feel like we've been able to dig in a little bit more with, you know, mentally what was going on with you, with all of that going on in your life. It's just been a really fascinating, fascinating yeah. conversation. In, in our workshop, I was putting tremendous pressure on myself. And I think Gretchen knew that. And so she was kind of prodding me. And um, uh, it was one of the the first morning notes that I read um, about the cool mountain breeze and stuff like this. I still have all of those. I do too. 
And I, and that's when Gretchen looked at me that, that morning of our workshop and said, well, you've made a little bit of a mental shift. And so I realized, oh, I'm relaxing about it. And yeah. then, you know, that whole experience of writing, you know, the song about the, you know, uh, Luciano, the, at the grave uh, stone, that was a magical experience because it was like, oh, I can do this and I can do it by myself. Yeah, just to give a little bit of context to our listeners. So one of the writing tasks that Stacey and I were given uh, by Gretchen Peters was, it, and I think if I remember correctly, was it after the cheese tasting day? It was that we either had wine or cheese or both. So there was, oh, there was, there was a bit involved. Um, cheese was breakfast, wine was lunch. Yeah, and then grandpa was we dinner. Stopped, we stopped at the graveyard uh, on it. the way to the restaurant in La Malay. That's correct. Yeah, yeah uh, I think that was uh, when we uh, lost Sybil. I think that could have been... That night when we lost her. But um, anyway, yeah, that was the writing task was we had to walk. Around. And the cemetery was was beautiful. Candles lit. And I mean, it, yeah, you know, flowers. pictures on yeah. absolutely beautiful. And we were to walk around and, and read and look at pictures and, and use that as inspiration for a song basically, right. um, which I felt like I failed at miserably, but I really thought that you, well, I mean, it, what you wrote really moved me. If um, you remember, the task was not to write a song at first. The task right. was a story based on the picture yes. and then take lines from the story and use them in a song because she yes, was explaining correct. how Bruce Springsteen sometimes does that, mm -hmm. uh, that he'll write a whole story and then go through an underlying lines that are potential lyrics yeah so um that that was the task and then when i read my story the next morning uh at that that's when gretchen started crying and lydia uh, who for the listeners organized the uh and who's a very close friend of mine she started crying later in the day she said you know i always knew you could make me laugh but i didn't think you could make me cry oh. and um and then gretchen turned to me that morning and said okay now turn it into a song. Yeah. And that's when, you know, it just, it just came very wow. naturally at that point. It was yeah. a very organic, it was totally surprising to me. And evidently Gretchen still talks about, it, which is great. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, somebody, somebody came up to me and said, I was at a workshop of Gretchen's and she mentioned some song that you wrote in Italy. And so I said, Oh, that's nice. You know, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, the the week was so like pivotal for me. But I think for me, the the true depth of it didn't hit me until after the week, which was when I right. really kind of as she kind of unlocked something in me. And and actually, Janie, Janie Barnett, shout out to her because she she worked with me that week and really really helped me to find what I think I went there looking for, but I didn't realize it was what I was looking for at the yeah, time. But it was just such a. I mean, I. Uh, anybody who listens to our podcast knows that we're huge Gretchen Peters fans and in, in, in the community. Bit, yeah. um, and, you know, absolutely, you know, rightfully so, because the woman is a yeah, legend. But, but. You know, she's a great writer. Uh, Barry, her husband, is a great yes. keyboard player and an yep. incredibly nice guy. Absolutely. And I, I'm I great at Barry. modeling merch as well. He does a fantastic job with that. Have yes, you checked out yeah. her Insta? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I knew Barry before the trip. Ah, okay. Uh, it actually played on some demo sessions of mine, uh, the keyboard player. And um, I had met Gretchen once or twice. And of course, Lydia, I knew very well for years at that point. Right. So, uh, uh, yeah, it was, well, it was a great 
I feel very, very fortunate that our paths crossed. And to be honest with you, when I, I'm pleased that I didn't know in London City Airport exactly who you were sitting next to me drinking coffee, because I think if I did, I would have got my now husband, then boyfriend to just take me back home to you know, <laughs> kind of do that fetal position on the sofa and just be like, why am I going here when people like that are going there? But it was it was a life changing week. And I feel really blessed that we got to. Yeah, to- yeah. Uh, yeah. Celine, what was very funny was I sat down in the I had spent a couple of days in London. I had a. a cousin who was at the time living in London, uh, also named Stacy, oddly. Uh, and uh, uh, so I went to the city airport for the flight to Florence. Uh, and I sat down with the coffee and there's this couple sitting next to me. And I see this young woman going through a book with lyrics. And I thought, well, that that's too coincidental. So I, I turned and I said, you know, um, by any chance, are you headed to the workshop? Uh, the Gretchen Peters workshop, and that was Tara, and and she was, and so that's when we first met. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think I said, oh, you know, so you've done a bit of songwriting, and I think you were incredibly modest from what I can remember. You're like, yeah, 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 I do a bit of songwriting. I've had had a bit of success. I think that was the the extent that it went to, and it wasn't until we'd been talking after we were in Italy, I was just like, okay, what are you doing here? (laughs) I think it was Neil Newton who outed me. Oh, and at breakfast, <laughs> he was also a member of We Write Songs, so we have to give him a shout out for this. So uh, he he turned to me at breakfast the next morning. He says, "I looked you up. Why aren't you teaching this workshop?" <laughs> and I, but I'm here for very specific purposes, and you can always learn. And I feel Absolutely. like I can learn. From, but that from is like breakfast. the best attitude. I love. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. It was. But it was very funny. And then another. Uh, member of our group, uh, Liz, said to me at one point, she said, you know, I, I, I don't know what you're talking I've never seen Dirty Dancing, which turned out to be an absolute fabrication. She'd seen it about a hundred <laughs> times. So I always ask her, because I've seen her in the years since, I said, you know, why did you say that? She says, I don't know. So it was I just, just very funny. Yeah. Oh, it's been um, an absolute pleasure talking with you and, and, and listening to your journey. your journey. I have written down more kind of hot tips from this conversation than any previous guest we've had before, Stacey. Uh, so thank you so much. I think the main one is actually uh, one that I'd written down uh, with our last guest as well, Rob Wells, uh, when you said about chasing the heart, don't chase the hit, chase right. the heart. And he had something right. very similar to say. And when you get that kind of two different people from two different songwriting worlds kind of telling you the same message, you've had, you know, success I think as uh, songwriters that are listening to this podcast, that is an absolute gem to take away from this is, you know, kind 100%. of just concentrate on hitting that heart rather yeah. than the hit. Yeah, that's definitely a lesson that I learned here in Nashville uh, and then how to take that and craft it. A, a great example of that was actually, you mentioned it before, was uh, working with Chris and Dave from Doc Walker yeah. when we wrote yeah. the song That Train. They came to, we had never worked together before. And they came to me with this section. They didn't know if it was a chorus or verse. And they played it for me. I said, well, it's definitely the chorus. And the song is called That Train. And they said, yeah, but what's it about? And I said, well, it hits me here that it's a song about addiction. And it's a song about wow. you know that that train is going to take you someplace bad, but you keep getting back on it. And um, they were like, oh, wow. So. 
so I said, we can make each verse a different story. And so we made the first verse about a, a drunk or drug addict in a lonely hotel room waking up on the floor. And the next one was based on a woman that I knew who kept going back to abusive relationships, another form of addiction. And then Chris came up with a great idea, which was the third verse, makes it personal for him about being addicted to being on the road. And uh, it was, it ended up, and it ended up being one of my favorite songs ever written because that I've ever been involved with because it was so heartfelt. Yeah. It's a great song. I really, I mean, I, I'm a huge Doc Walker fan and yeah. it is one of my favorite songs by them. So that's great. Thanks. And I didn't realize so, when I met you that you had, you had written it. So it's just, yeah, very interesting how, how things all. I, I, I probably print a resume, keep it around my neck, you know, <laughs> by the way, I think it might be a little bit long. Days, you might uh, trip on it, Daisy. Yeah. Right. Very, very funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll sure. be sure to put lots of links in our show notes so people can reach out and see, you know, hear your work, see your wonderful photography, all sorts of things like that. And um, this has just been so much fun. It's been one of my yeah. favorite episodes to great, record, great. Celine. I don't know about you. Oh, for me, it's been uh, fascinating, absolutely fascinating to hear your kind of journey. So thank you so much for giving up your time for our lovely listeners. And I, and I will see you in London next month. I will see you in London. That's right. Stacey and I are meeting up for dinner. So <laughs> excellent work. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening, guys. Take care. 